Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any hosts or guests' individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. This is Marianne Russo. I want to welcome back Dr. James Copeland. He is um, he gave us a wonderful interview a few years ago, and he's back today on a really um, important and sensitive topic about preventing the next Adam Lanza and Elliot Rogers um, in the wake of the recent shootings in Santa Barbara. Dr. Copeland has been caring for children with special needs since 1977. He realized his calling when he was a child himself um, after his younger sister was diagnosed with a developmental disability. Dr. Copeland has attained recognition in all three medical specialties pertaining to child development, pediatrics, child neurodevelopmental disabilities, and child psychiatry. His book, Making Sense of Autistic Spectrum Disorders, Create the Brightest Future for Your Child with the Best Treatment Options, introduces a really revolutionary three-dimensional model of autism spectrum disorders that simultaneously takes into account a child's atypical features, um, their level of general intelligence, age, and um, it's really a fantastic book. We did the interview on that. Um, His 3D model provides a roadmap on which to chart a child's progress over time and a framework for making decisions about the best therapies at each stage of development. His book also addresses the many conflicting claims regarding causation of autistic spectrum disorders, proven and unproven interventions, and possible reasons for the so-called explosion of cases of autism spectrum disorders. So let me welcome back Dr. James Copeland. How are you? Hi, Mary Ann, and thank you very much for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm so glad that um, you are because this is a really important topic. And um, before we go into it, I just want to ask you a question. Um, You know, I was reading the introduction. Um, Let's start with the possible reasons for the so-called explosion in cases of autism spectrum disorders. Why do you think we're seeing the numbers 1 in 68? I mean, that's astronomical. This is a very interesting question, and in fact, the key information was just coming out when my book was published in 2010. I literally had to call the editors and say, stop the presses, I want to insert a little paragraph. Um, There was a a landmark study that was published in England. I put a link to it up on my website. I'm sure your listeners will be getting that information about my website uh, at some point in the program. Um, The study uh, was done in England. It was a door-to-door study, and it was entitled... Um, autism spectrum disorders in adults living in households throughout England. This is the first, and as far as I know, the only 
epidemiologically valid door-to-door study of adults living in the community using today's criteria to diagnose spectrum disorder. And what they found in adults all the way out to age 70 is that 1 in 55 males and 1 in 200 females, adults, have spectrum disorder. Now, that's like getting into the DeLorean from Back to the Future and going back 65 years. So those people were there. What really happened was 65 years ago, they weren't diagnosed with spectrum disorder because back in those days, either that was um, before the diagnosis was in the book um, or the diagnosis was very restrictive and it was only given to children with the, the most severe form. So in fact, um, if, if that survey is replicated and the data turn out to be uh, true, and I, I think uh, they are true, what we're really seeing is not an explosion in actual numbers of people with, the di- with spectrum disorder. What we're seeing is um, an increase in the number of people with a diagnosis of spectrum disorder, but a lot of them were there all along. And uh, again, if people go to my website um, and on the home page they click on the, the nav bar on the left, it says related links, and then they can go and look up the paper for themselves and read it. What's interesting is that paper has been essentially greeted with a deafening silence because um, uh, it, it flies in the face of the common wisdom that we're in the middle of some kind of epidemic when, in fact, there are no data to support that. Yeah, you know, and it's very interesting because I believe the numbers um, really need to be explained a little bit better um, to the general population because mm-hmm. my understanding is that of that 1 in 68, 30% really have profound autism and that 70% are really high-functioning um, labeled Asperger's or you know, right. new DSM labeling for them. But, you know, that's important because um, these are the kids that weren't identified before. Right. And in fact, uh, there are data that will show just what you've said. If you imagine a pie in 1970, let's say the pie was thought to be very small, two to four children per 10,000 is what I was taught when I was in medical school. But the entire pie, almost the entire pie was composed of people with uh, uh, IQ in the intellectually disabled range. Today, we know the pie is much, much bigger but the slice of the pie that's composed of people with intellectual disability is a much smaller proportion of the total pie. In other words, most of the increase in identified numbers is coming at that higher end, the kids who are mildly atypical and with normal IQ, who in days gone by would have been labeled with oppositional defiant disorder, attention deficit disorder, or just quirky kids. Right. And it's important to know that it's not only just normal intelligence. A lot of these children are really very gifted. They're very, very bright, which really blurs the picture as well, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, so let's jump right into it and talk about the recent linking of um, Asperger's syndrome with the mass murderers um, by Adam Lanza and now horrifically last week, Elliot Rogers. Um, mm-hmm. My fear, personally, is that the stigma of monsters will be associated with Asperger's and unfairly mm-hmm. brand these kids, you know, as well mm-hmm. as put blame on the parents. And you wrote an article um, 
that really, you know, it was written a few years ago, but I mean, it's really important, and I'd like to read a little bit of it. It's sure. entitled, Is One of My Patients the Next Adam Lanza? And I'm going to paraphrase the text sure. because it was lengthy, but I am going to be posting this for everyone to read the whole thing. Um, As a neurodevelopmental pediatrician specializing in the care of children with autism spectrum disorder, I am the harbor master of a thousand ships. One of those ships is doomed to hit an iceberg, but I don't know which one. This is the message I drive home to parents with varying degrees of success. Nearly all of my patients meet classical criteria for autism, impaired socialization, impaired language pragmatics, and repetitive behaviors. But their issues also include anxiety, depression, and dysregulation of arousal, the flight or flight, fight or flight response. Attention span ranging from impulsivity to obsessions, mood, sleep, and or sensory processing. Despite the neat categories laid out by the DSM-5, Mother Nature does not put people into diagnostic cubbies. In a recent study out of Harvard, one-third of kids with bipolar type 1 also met criteria for autism. Do they have one disorder or two? Mother Nature doesn't care. They have what they have, atypicality and bipolarity. 50% of kids with childhood schizophrenia started out with autism. As many as 70% of adults with autism suffer from anxiety disorder or depression. Not only do a large portion of my patients have autism plus, which means autism plus mental illness, the majority of children with autism plus have at least one parent with neuropsychiatric impairment. Impairment may take the form of diagnosable mental illness, typically general anxiety disorder, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, or less commonly bipolar, um, among parents whose symptoms fall short of a formal diagnosis. Um, They still have disabling traits such as anxiety, cognitive rigidity, very black and white thinking. Um, Not only does parental neuropsychiatric impairment hamper their ability to function effectively on behalf of their child, it often blinds them to the signs of the impending crisis. Parents may declare after the fact that they didn't see it coming, but that doesn't mean there weren't signs. Public schools suffer from their own form of myopia, myopia, focusing narrowly on outwardly visible symptoms such as students' verbal or physical aggression, while ignoring internalizing behaviors such as anxiety, depression, perfectionism, or obsession or preoccupation with real or perceived injustices. Um, that was just, you know, when I read that, I was like, we really have to do this show because, you know, I want to talk about you write about internalizing behavior, and that's so key, and I think a lot of parents don't know what that is, or educators. So what do you mean by internalizing behavior, and what happens when it's not addressed? Okay, so in the, pardon me, in the, the, the terminology of the profession, behaviors can be, divided into externalizing and internalizing. Externalizing behaviors are those that are visible on the outside. Aggression, either verbal or physical, uh, is an externalizing behavior. Internalizing behaviors are the ones that we we hold inside of us, and those uh, include anxiety, depression, obsessive thinking, um, uh, heightened self-blame, and there's a um, there's a cluster of things that tend to go together, and they, unless you ask about them, you're not going to know that they're there. And in fact, somewhat um, ironically or perversely almost, the child who's sitting at his desk obsessing about how many window 
how many slats are in the bank of uh, window blinds behind the teacher or who's obsessively perfectionistically working on a math paper he's sitting quietly at his desk so it's not a problem in the classroom so in some ways there's actually I don't want to call it a reward but a general lack of attention by the educational system to a child who's internalizing until they start to externalize. Now, I'm 66. I remember elephant jokes. I won't, won't ask your age, but there used to be a, a joke that would go like this. How do you kill a blue elephant? And I shouldn't use it. I don't mean it to be funny, but you shoot it with a blue elephant gun. And then the riddle would be, how do you kill a pink elephant? Well, the answer is you hold him by his trunk till he turns blue. Then shoot him with a blue elephant gun. And what happens with kids who are internalizing, as long as they're not failing academically, or disruptive, their anxiety, depression, perfectionism, and exaggerated self-criticism and all the rest get overlooked until the child erupts into some kind of behavior. Um, the other trigger for uh, intervention by schools is academic failure, and the mantra about Adam Lanza was, oh, he was doing so well. Well, he was internalizing and he was passing his courses, He was, but he, he was not externalizing yet. But, of course, by the time that happened, it all came catastrophically all at once, and it was too late to do anything. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that that's so key because that's why these kids fall through the cracks because they do very well academically. Mm-hmm. They can be very articulate. They're not the troublemakers. That's right. Um, and they're perceived as these great little, you know, goody-two-shoes kids, and <laughs> they're really suffering. So, um, you know, they re- that's why I really wanted you to get that out so that parents and right. educators can start looking at these kids a little bit differently. See, I you think know, the, the parents case, realize. Let me, let me stop you for a second, Marianne. My experience has been that parents get it. Absolutely. Or at least, you know, I have I have a very skewed view of the universe because the only children that I get to see are the ones whose parents come to me. I don't see the ones who didn't right. come to me. I mean, that's obvious. But most of the time, the parents understand because this is also the kid who may be getting beaten up in the boys' room or shunned on the playground Uh, you know, spends recess walking around the perimeter of the uh, playground studying the chain-link fence rather than being included for for volleyball or something like that. And the parents see it, but trying to um, get the system, quote-unquote, to respond can be a challenge. It is so frustrating because parents are screaming um, for help for their children. And, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, what the criteria is for children to get services and help, um, you know, a lot of these kids just don't meet it until it's too late. Um, but, you know, parents definitely see it. And, you know, a lot of, oftentimes you hear the parents, you know, say that they see behaviors at home that teachers don't see at school, and, you know, the teachers just think they're crazy. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they are screaming for help. I mean, in the mm-hmm. cases of Adam Lanza and Elliot Rogers, um, mm-hmm. you often see this inability to let go of perceived injustices. It seems mm-hmm. to be a very common characteristic. Um, you know, how can that be dealt with? Because I know that a lot of parents that have children um, on the spectrum and, um, you know, with other differences um, say that their, their children just cannot let go of right. an emotional episode or a thought that right. they have. Right. So uh, let me pull the camera back a little bit and just talk about a toy that I think you probably had as a kid and I did and a lot of your listeners did. It's the magic eight ball. 
you would have an eight ball and there'd be a little window on the bottom and you'd ask the eight ball a question and you'd turn it over and the various answers would float up to the surface in that little window. Things like signs point to yes or I can't tell you now or you don't really want to know. Everybody, I think, has seen that toy. And what I talk to parents about is the eight ball from hell. And the eight ball from hell is what I call cognitive rigidity. Now, a lot of these are the same things we just got through talking about in terms of internalizing behavior. Cognitive rigidity means difficulty shifting mental sets. What, what that means in English is, suppose I told you to sort a bunch of blocks by color, and then midway through I said, nope, I want you to sort them by size. You would have to shift the way you were doing things. And people on the spectrum have difficulty shifting mental sets. If you think about the scene in Rain Man, you know, two minutes to Wapner, got to see Wapner. Dustin Hoffman's character could not shift mental sets and let go of what was supposed to happen next. So the different, the different little things that float up in that window of the cognitive rigidity eight ball include um, uh, perfectionism and anxiety and uh, uh, preemptive worry about what might happen if, um, as well as difficulty letting go. So those are all part of sticky brain. They're all part of cognitive rigidity. And there are several ways to address that. The first of which is for parents and teachers uh, and everybody else to understand that this behavior is neurologically driven. The child is not choosing to be stubborn any more than a, somebody with cerebral palsy might choose to limp. It's the way their brain is. Um, to quote another movie, if you think about the scene in Aviator where Leonardo DiCaprio, who plays Howard Hughes, keeps repeating the phrase, bring me all the blueprints, and he would like to stop, but he can't. So these are driven behaviors, and the, the intervention includes uh, mental health services for the child. There's a, there's a useful form of mental health intervention called cognitive behavioral therapy. We don't have time, or if you want, we could make the time to oh, explain how yeah. that works. I've done um, many shows on that specifically. It's okay, so yes. And even even little kids get it. There's a wonderful book, and I'm not a show for Carrie Dunburon, but there's a book called uh, The Incredible Five Point Scale, and one of the pages in that book is called My Obsessional Index, and it gives the child a way to talk about their obsessions, and I'm, I'm feeling pretty good today. My, my obsessional personality is a neurological work of art. That's the best level, and then the worst level is I can't control it. I'll need some help. And then in between, so you, even six-year-olds who can barely read it, they get it, and they, you can work with them in a CBT format. Um, there's also family intervention because Cognitive rigidity is a strongly genetically transmitted trait, and if the, the apple does not usually fall far from the tree, uh, and more likely than not, one or the other parent will say, yep, I totally get that. The parent may not have spectrum disorder, but they may have anxiety or obsessive mentation. So it's a family affair, and you want to get the parents some help so that they can role model being a non-anxious, flexible advocate for the child. And then the third level is medication, not by itself and not as a band-aid, but the combination of individual mental health for the child, uh, intervention at a family systems level as well as individually for the parent, and medication can help. But it's like taking insulin for diabetes. It doesn't cure your diabetes, but it helps you lead a, a almost completely normal life. And in the same way, somebody who's got those traits 
always has to be attuned to that risk and, and has to do their little mental exercises every day before setting off for the day, but it's addressable. Right. Um, these perceived injustices, as you said, this isn't something that they want to feel, that they want mm-hmm. to obsess over. Right. But it seems to be a very common characteristic in these children that are at risk. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'm glad you brought up the cognitive behavioral therapy because, you know, oftentimes going to talk therapy is wonderful, but if you're not given tools to deal with right. your thoughts or your behaviors, That's it right. can actually be counterproductive. So cognitive mm-hmm. behavioral therapy is great for this. Um, you also talked about in one of your presentations that I watched um, when behavior is not behavioral. So can right. you tell us what is the difference? Sure. Now, um, I'm going to talk as if life were black and white, but it's really not. I mean, in one corner is black, in the other corner is white, and in the vast middle is gray. But um, garden variety behavior is socially contingent. What does that mean? It means, um, for example, children ordinarily um, are very economical of their energy, and they're not going to use their energy for things that aren't working. If you've got a child who's tantruming, Every time the parent gives in and gives the child the candy bar in the checkout aisle just to quiet the child down, the child wins. And I think there ought to be a special place in hell for whoever the marketers were who figured out putting the candy right there because they knew what they were doing. Um, And it's really (laughs) Machiavellian. But every time the child wins, that's reinforcing the likelihood of another tantrum in the future. But if the the parent puts that behavior on extinction and says, kid, you can tantrum till you're blue in the face, you're not getting a candy bar, then eventually the tantrums will extinguish. So that's a behavior that is contingent on environmental social responses. And the, the big three reasons why kids with neurotypical development tantrum is either to get attention, to gain access to the goodie, or to get out of a task. And if the child succeeds at getting attention, gaining access to the goodie, or getting out of a task, that's reinforcement, and the child is going to therefore be more likely to tantrum again the next time. So those are behaviors that are behavioral in the lay sense of the term. Now, the behaviors that are not quote-unquote behavioral in the lay sense of the term are the ones that are neurologically driven. The child uh, will engage in those behaviors irrespective of environmental contingencies. And I think a good example of that, uh, we've already mentioned Dustin Hoffman, his character, the late Kim Peek from, from Rain Man, and he's going, two minutes to Wapner, gotta see Wapner. Or uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, character based on the real life Howard Hughes, bring me all the blueprints, bring me all the blueprints. And in that movie, Hughes, uh, played by DiCaprio, goes into a car, shuts the doors, puts his hands over his mouth, and he starts to cry because he wants to stop, but he can't. And no amount of environmental contingency uh, is going to stop his brain from doing that. So those behaviors are driven, uh, just like the old uh, car commercial that said, we are driven. These are behaviors that have a life of their own, I suppose a more... um, familiar and perhaps humorous example is the woman who goes into labor and she has those nesting behaviors where she runs around and cleans the house. So those are behaviors that are, they come from some other wellspring, not 
environmental contingencies, and and they often look alike, but the way you right. respond is going to differ. Absolutely, and I'm so glad you mentioned that because the first part you were talking about, I had a little knot in my stomach, and then the second part I was like, phew, okay, great, because there is a big difference between behaviors of a child with a neurobiological disorder, um, neurodevelopmental disorder, Mm -hmm. and those without. And, you know, I think that's really key that parents understand that too because you can have several children and you have to parent them differently. Um, You know, use collaborative parents, you know, collaborative Mm -hmm. problem-solving with all kids. But knowing what the triggers are, utilizing the cognitive behavioral therapy, and most importantly is parents need to take training classes themselves so that they can understand that. But now let's focus on the kids with the neurodevelopmental neurobiological disorders. And the behavior management therapy usually includes psychopharmacology, like you said, cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. You talked about a few things that work. So what works, what doesn't, and what do parents need to know not to waste their time and money? So first, let me just go back and add on to what you said, Marianne, about collaborative uh, partnerships. Um, I'm I'm well aware, and and I I say to parents, um, look, I'm safe and warm and dry in my little lighthouse up on the shore, and you guys are down there in the water in your rowboat, and you've got to row and steer and bail and set course and not smash on the rocks. And I know that, and I have to be respectful of the fact that you guys are the ones that have to make executive decisions and keep your boat afloat and on course. And I'm here as a navigation beacon, but I'm not the thought police, and I'm not here to judge you. And uh, my job is to, to present information to you in a way that you may find helpful but I'm always mindful of the fact that you, meaning the parents, are the ones who are ultimately responsible. And I I come by that uh, experience honestly, as you said. I grew up in a household with a sibling with special needs. And, you know, I'm, at, I'm in a front row seat on the 50-yard line, but I'm not the one who's out there on the field. And I'm, I'm always cognizant of that. And I, I always try to impress that upon parents that I'm here to be there. Uh, a sounding board for them, but I, I um, have to be respectful of the fact that they're in the the driver's seat. So uh, back to your question, if you can repeat the question, I kind of took myself a little bit of field there. You know, what I was saying was that, you know... About what works. Pe- okay, so let me talk right. about what works. Thank you. A little senior moment. All right, so <laughs> I have... I I have <laughs> yes, they happen. So I have some standing rules in my office before we get to meds. I first of all I have an absolute requirement that unless one of the parents is deceased in jail or overseas in the military um or it was just a fleeting relationship and the father has no involvement or if it was an anonymous sperm donor and the mother doesn't even know who the father was both parents need to come for the initial visit. I will not see a child without both parents, even if they're divorced and hate each other's guts, especially if they're divorced and hate each other's guts. Especially, right. Yes, they both need to be there. They need to sit down. I need to hear from both of them. And it's amazing how much I learn by getting both parents in the room because, as I tell parents, there are always, always three levels I'm looking at. What's going on between the kids' ears, what's going on within the family system, and what's going on within the wider system in the community. So I need both parents there. That's number one. Number two, I have a a form which looks like an informed consent 
for a medication treatment, which it is actually, and what it, the parents need to sign is to say, we understand that psychotropic medication alone is not the answer, and we agree as part of the treatment plan for getting medication for a child to go for mental health intervention for our child or ourselves as the doctor may deem necessary as part of the treatment plan. And I will not have parents um, let me give them a medicine as a Band-Aid for the kid's behavior and then the parents don't do the heavy lifting that they need to do. Now, sadly, there are some families who don't want to deal with that and they they don't follow through. And the, the ethical dilemma I've had is because I am very clear about that there are some kids whom I might have been able to help a little bit with medicine but now I'm not helping them at all but on the other hand the other side of that is I'm just perpetuating a situation as the boat drifts slowly to the brink of Niagara Falls by not getting the parents into the picture and and, uh, getting them into the intervention that they may need so rule number one is both parents need to be there rule number two is if there are mental health issues within or between the parents, those need to be addressed. And then rule number three is we need to see if the kid is in the right school, is he getting the right kind of services at school, including behavioral supports. And I have a whole positive behavior support plan for internalizing behavior. And then we get to medication. Now, so there's kind of the, the prequel, but all of that said, there are specific classes of behavior. Um, There's uh, cognitive rigidity that we mentioned. There's dysregulation of attention, and that can go all the way from inattention on the one hand to hyper-focus on the other. The kid is kind of going off both corners, both shoulders of the road. And I have one child as a patient whose father is actually a healthcare professional, and he wrote on his child's questionnaire, and this was a child with obsessions, he said, my child has overattention deficit disorder. So you can go from inattention to hyperfocus. And then the third big area is dysregulation of arousal. And we're talking here about the fight or flight uh, response, which can be on a very hair trigger. And these are parents who say, well, everything is fine. And then out of the clear blue, bam, he hits his sister. And we never know when it's coming. And we feel like we're walking on eggs. So those are the three big areas. Cognitive rigidity, which is anxiety, depression, perfectionism, uh, can't let go. And then dysregulation of attention, which can be either inattention or perseveration and the perseveration overlaps with cognitive rigidity but it's a little different because it's like the energizer bunny the kid just keeps going and going and going but it's not with that urgency about it that you see in cognitive rigidity but they reinforce each other and then the the dysregulation of arousal we mentioned so you've got to be you've got to at least set up an idea in your mind about which class of behavior or because Mother Nature can throw them all at you, which classes of behavior you're looking at and which one to treat first. And I have a a whole chapter in my book and several posts on my website that talk about that. So there's kind of a conceptual model of what you think is going on, but often it's like the scrambled oldies on an oldie radio channel where there are six things playing at once and you've got to be the first caller to call in and this is Elvis and the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. So they're all going on at once. You've got to be able to think it through. All of that said, the SSRIs 
the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors really work for anxiety. They don't treat autism, and they're not FDA approved for the treatment of autism, but they are FDA approved for the treatment of anxiety disorders in children. So I'll tell parents, look, I'm not treating your kid's autism with this. I'm treating your kid's anxiety, and it can well, be life-changing. Yeah. Well, that's where Likewise, I want to go ahead with this. I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay, so the, the stimulants may work for kids on the spectrum, but I, for inattention and hyperactivity, but I prefer guanfacine, which um, there are some brand names that I don't normally mention, but things like Intiniv, which is a brand name for guanfacine, <clears throat> because um, the, the guanfacine-type drugs don't make anxiety or rigidity or tics worse. And then for the quote-unquote irritability, which is the FDA term, the kids with agitated disruptive behavior, the atypical neuroleptics uh, like aripiprazole and risperidone, those can also be life-changing even in very small doses. Right, and what uh, I wanted to go into was that, you know, when, when you talk about these medications, I think what's important is you talked about the Autism Plus. So, you know, what I see um, is that, you know, there is a real relationship between autism spectrum disorders and mental illness. So there's a lot of mm-hmm. comorbidity. You usually don't find one, one thing without a little bit of something else. Mm-hmm. And autism often comes with much of that, and it plays a huge role in the behavior, right. diagnosis, and treatment. So, but my concern is this. When, as we're talking about these crises and these tragedies that have happened, um, you know, how does compartmentalizing these multiple diagnoses into just an autism label um, you know, play a role in identifying these kids? I mean, how do we find these right. at-risk kids that right. have so much comorbidity? How, you know, how much does comorbidity play a role in these, these kids that wind up just going over the edge? Well, we could easily spend uh, a week on this, but in brief, the term comorbidity is is a, um, a fiction in the sense that when I think about comorbidity, I think about a milkman with his little uh, handheld uh, carrier, and he may have milk, butter, eggs, orange juice, each one in a different slot, or a gumball machine where you've got the red gumballs and the green gumballs and the white ones and the blue ones. In other words, comorbidity is this concept that we have the, these discrete, separate, distinct entities that happen to coexist. Mm -hmm. But that's not the way it really is. And the DSM-6, when it comes out, whenever it comes out, um, in the words of one of my colleagues, is going to map all these disorders from the inside out. In other words, instead of trying to group things into uh, fictitious little cubbies based on homogeneity of symptoms, we're going to recognize that it's not so much comorbidity as Instead, it's continuum and metamorphosis. So continuum means there's a, there are shades of gray, there's overlap, there are kids who fall across the labels. You know, if we had red and yellow and you have uh, a red and yellow checkered sports coat, (laughs) I wouldn't go out in public with it, but if you mix red and yellow, you get another color, you get orange. And there really ought to be a separate term in DSM for spectrum disorder plus anxiety. But we don't give them separate terms, but what we need to do is recognize that there's a continuum. And then metamorphosis, when my, when my now 40-year-old daughter was two and a half, I showed her a caterpillar. And I said, look, Becky, 
this is going to turn into a butterfly. And she wrinkled up her nose and gave me a withering look like, I may be young, but I'm not stupid. But in fact, some kids, when they're young, start out with the whole nine yards of spectrum disorder. And then 10 or 15 years later, their symptoms have evolved so that now they have uh, bipolar disorder or personality disorder or a few of them, a small number, schizophrenia, with residual traces of atypicality. I have a colleague who's a psychiatrist, and he once said to me, Jim, you and I see the same people but at different points in the life cycle. And he was right. So the term comorbidity in and of itself is one of those terms that leads us astray and it leads to this compartmentalized thinking which is positively unhelpful absolutely Uh, you would love um i I have a writing i I wrote the palette and i actually have a palette of colors and um, you know yeah i'll send it to you and you know actually what i talk about is that um you know, I view, after doing this for so many years and having a special needs child, mm-hmm. I view mental illness as a spectrum no different than autism. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, it, it's all of these different symptoms yeah. and variations. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that's, it's so important because yeah. you cannot know a child that may get a diagnosis of autism, Asperger's, at a fairly young age, let's say under 10. Um, right. You know what that's going to unfold and unravel that's into right. by the time right. they're twenty. So it's that's not, right. in my opinion, the Aspergers that you could really blame for these children, um, you know, these young adults who have been committing these horrendous crimes. It's what's unfolded and probably wasn't dealt with. And a lot of times things aren't dealt with because as they get older, you know, especially if they have the the, the mental illness, they become non-compliant. They don't want to take their medications. Right. They don't want to. Right the psychiatrist, as in the case of of, um, Elliot Rogers. Mm -hmm. Well, Mark Twain said, um, to paraphrase, when I was 16, my father was so damn stupid I couldn't stand to be around the old man. It's remarkable how much my father learned by the time I turned 21. And uh, parents don't get any special free pass um, just because their kid has high-functioning spectrum disorder. A lot of those same things happen. But to get back to your original question, um, the, the, the interplay between atypicality and all of the other things, anxiety, depression, cognitive rigidity, dysregulation of arousal, is very complex. As you know, there's an expression, and I, I think you would agree, when you've met one person on the spectrum, you've met one person on the spectrum. I actually use, uh, and some of your listeners may be familiar with the painter Mondrian, who has the little red, yellow, blue, and white squares, and his paintings are all like Mm -hmm. a grid. And I say, life is not like that. Life is more like a Monet painting with the water lilies where all the colors blend and blur. And and, um, it's kind of a, not a fruitful question or fruitful debate to say, did his Asperger's play into it? I think rather the way to look at this is to say some people are at higher risk than others. Some people are at lower risk than others. Some of those people at higher risk have a spectrum diagnosis. Some don't. But what is it about the people with a spectrum diagnosis that places them at a higher risk than the rest? And we, we don't have 
decent population-based data to really answer the question, and I, I'm sorry, but we don't, and I, I have the references, and they're going to be in my next blog post uh, from the leading researchers. We don't know the overall risk of uh, risk for committing violent crime in people with spectrum disorder compared to the general population. Nobody's done that research, so we don't know. But arguments about that number, which we don't have, are really beside the point. What we really want to know is what are the protective factors or risk factors that tip somebody in one direction or the other. And certainly um, there's reason to suppose that neuropsychiatric comorbidity is a risk factor. There's, there's one paper that has just come out, uh, and it's going to be cited in my blog, where things like um, family dysfunction or uh, divorce or loss of a parent are risk factors, not by themselves, but in conjunction with other things. And I think that makes a certain amount of common sense. So what we need to be looking at is what are the what are the risk factors we need to be targeting? Delayed diagnosis of spectrum disorder is also a risk factor, we think, because those kids probably went unserved for longer uh, than uh, kids who were recognized early. Uh, but this is really where the research and the energy needs to go, um, in my opinion. Right. And, you know, I never get political on this show, but gun control. That is certainly an issue here. Um, you know, where you have two in one case where the, the guns were, you know, part of their family culture, um, which, you know, in hindsight was probably a very poor um, you know, decision, um, you know, with Adam Lanza. And then you have, you know, Elliot uh, Rogers, who, you know, got them on his own. Um, you know, that's, that's a real issue is, is keeping arms out of the hands of these, um, you know, these at-risk teens and young adults. Um, you know, the mental health care system, They're, we have to better identify these kids, schools, colleges, have to be able to better identify and not only identify but offer services um, for these kids, make parents aware of the situations. Um, you know, it's just it's got to stop. Well, I have had some um, very fruitful discussions with former First Lady Rosalind Carter. In fact, uh, she and I have exchanged books and catered back and forth. And some years ago, uh, she and I were chatting, and she asked me about the issue of stigma in the developmental disability community. And at the time, which was before Newtown, I, I rather glibly responded, oh, that, that battle has been won when Pearl Buck published the book, The Child Who Never Grew, in about 1955, and uh, what we used to then call mental retardation, now called intellectual disability, kind of came out of the closet. And then when President Kennedy was open about having a sister with special needs, uh, that that war was won. Uh, but it turns out I may have spoken too soon because mm -hmm. the the intersection of spectrum disorder and mental illness uh, has, I think, highlighted um, the residual issue of the stigma of mental illness and a, a uh, unfortunate tendency to want to attribute the totality of the behavior of an Adam Lanza or an Elliot Roger to anything other than the spectrum disorder. Uh, as if when somebody 
engages in a violent crime, they have stepped through some magic door, leaving all of their atypicality behind and now being exclusively under the uh, influence of their mental illness, quote-unquote, when in fact Mother Nature doesn't respect those boundaries in the first place and there is no such magic door. Um, so I, I, one of the key issues, I think, is to destigmatize the issue of mental illness. A second issue is to recognize, as we were talking about earlier, that the boundary, the, the, the fictitious boundary in DSM is in fact a fiction, that we're not looking at a watertight uh, compartment like on the Titanic between mental illness over here and spectrum disorder over there, that in fact it's very porous and um, we need to factor all of those things in and instead of arguing about some average number that we don't have, what we need to be focusing on is what are the particular risk factors. And in my uh, not-so-humble opinion, I don't think it's mental illness per se. I think it's unaddressed mental illness. Because I have a lot of families where mom or dad has a um, severe anxiety disorder. I have several families where the dads in particular have um, generalized anxiety disorder with agoraphobia. It means they're afraid to leave their house. And one dad says to me, Dr. Copeland, I have suicidal mentation. The only time I ever leave the house is when I bring my children to you along with my wife. But these are people who are in treatment. The families that I worry about are the ones where the father or the mother denies that they have issues or that their child has issues and they don't get the intervention. So it's not, it's not the mental illness per se. It's the, it's the families who don't face it and deal with it, I think, that's the problem. Yeah, I think in some cases that's the problem. And then in many cases the parents, I mean, they try every possible means to get um, help, and whether it's just no quality help, whether it's not available, or whether, as I said, as the kids grow out of the system um, and they make their own decisions, it's very difficult, even with a health care proxy or whatever. It's it's very difficult. It's very challenging for these parents. And um, I hope that uh, parents understand that, um, you know, we try to take great care here to... um, to let people know that this is not an autism issue. This is not an Asperger's issue. This is not the cause of these types of behaviors. This is not bad parenting. Um, This is just a situation that needs to be addressed, and these kids need to be better identified. And I thank you, Dr. Copeland, for joining me um, to really just tell it like it is and to, um, you know, to, to put a real clear lens on what's been happening. Um, why don't you tell us um, your website, because it is sure. incredible, very informative. Well, it's www.drcoplan. There's no E and no D in my name. It's C-O-P-L-A-N. So it's www.drcopeland.com. Um, And when you go there, um, there are several, if you go to my blog, uh, by the time the show airs, the next blog post that includes some of these references may be up on the home page. If you go to the left to the uh, useful links, you'll find the the reference to the British study. So it's Dr. Copeland, D-R-C-O-P-L-A-N.com, and you'll find a lot of that up there. Um, And to your point about parents, I I did uh you know I I, I 
Einstein said everything should be stated as simply as possible, but no simpler. And I, I think the one thing I, I hope I've avoided is the danger of oversimplification, mm-hmm. because there is this tremendous, tremendous urge and desire to have a simple answer. And I just don't think it's as simple as people would like it to be. I think life is very messy. Life is full of shades of gray. Um, and I, I, uh, I hope that we can be uh, thoughtful and move forward in a way that's constructive um, and not succumb to that uh, temptation to try to, to oversimplify because that, that doesn't help. Absolutely. Well, again, I thank you for joining us. I look forward to uh, having you back on another time. And, um, thank you. Speaking with you, I think we have uh, some things that we'll be working on in common. So, okay, uh, very good. Good talk. Anyway, um, thank you to your listeners for spending their time with us. You're welcome. Um, I usually end our show with my typical motto, but for today I'm going to end it with something I think that I often tell parents and everyone else. When you hear the words mental illness, take out the mental and remember illness. These children need help. These families need support. And that's what we're here trying to do. Next week is Father's Day. And for all of you amazing fathers and the mothers, we have a great show for you. Um, We have dads with disabilities and the women um, who love them. It is a special show. We have giveaways, and it is an unbelievable book. Uh, Vignettes of all stories from uh, mothers and fathers and children writing about their fathers and um, the strength that they've given. So that's next week. And you can find us on the web at www.thecoffeeclatch.com. I'd like to play a little promo for next week's Father's Day, but before that I want to again thank Dr. Coughlin. Have a great night, everyone, and listen to the next week's promo. This episode sponsored by Dads of Disability, stories for, by, and about fathers of children who experience disability and the women who love them. 41 essays, including a forward by the director of the Genetic Counseling Program at Boston University. Samples and special offer at www.dadsofdisability.com slash coffee.